As we uh, continue in our Impact World series this morning, we are in Acts chapter 9. We'll be looking at the latter portion of that, beginning with verse 32. I would invite you to turn with me there in your Bibles or on your electronic devices. Acts chapter 9, we'll begin with verse 32. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, roll up your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, in Greek her name is Dorcas, she was always doing good and helping the poor. <clears throat> About that time, she became sick and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying, and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand, helped her to her feet. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we open your word today, we confess that we are not all that we should be. Father, those of us who are in Christ have been cleansed, and we have a resurrection power in us by the Holy Spirit of Christ. And yet, still we choose our own way over your way so often. Lord, cleanse us. Oh, you have cleansed us from, from that deep stain of sin in Christ and all of the punishment for our sin has fallen on him. And yet, as he told his disciples, even though we're clean, walking around in this world, we get dirty and we still need to wash our feet. Father, we want to approach you the only way that we can approach you with clean hands and a pure heart. So we confess as one body our sin. Not one of us, not one of us has this all nailed down. So Father, we confess we don't want to be liars. 
and we rest in the reality that you are faithful. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, now shine the light of your spirit on the text for us today. Help us to see what you have for us. Nothing more, nothing less. Change us from the inside out, Lord. Cause us to shine your light for all to see. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've ever seen a, a pebble get thrown into a, a puddle or a pond, you know that from that epicenter where it hits, there's a ripple effect. And the waves spread out from there. There's no outer impact. The pebble doesn't hit in multiple spots and, and reach farther and farther out. The, the pebble hits in one spot. And in that one spot, there's an impact that then radiates outward. It goes out farther and farther. And the, the water around it is changed by what happens at the center. As we look at the text today, that's exactly what's happening. As we see this, this powerful story of two very profound miracles, I, I confess I struggled with trying to figure out why Luke put it here. Now, this isn't the first time we see miracles. It's not the first time we see someone raised in Scripture. It is the first time here in the book of Acts that we see this from one of the uh, apostles. And, and as Peter heals Aeneas, this crippled man, that's not really new. We've seen this. Raising Tabitha is new, but it's not in itself completely unique. Why? Why, why would he put it here? And, and why, not only why would he include it, but why specifically in this place? What is the unexpected part? Now, to be sure, we don't want to dismiss these miracles because the miraculous is still the exception to the rule in the book of Acts. Throughout the New Testament, the miraculous is still the exception. We don't see everyone healed. We don't see everyone raised in fact, as we go through the accounts of salvation and the gospel being presented, only about half the time are there signs and wonders, miraculous things that accompany it. They do, and that matters, and it's significant. But it's not universal. The focus here isn't so much on the miracles, and, and of course that's our tendency. Of course we're going to look at these exceptional things and see the power of Christ demonstrated, and in seeing the power of Christ demonstrated, our attention will be drawn to that. That's not insignificant, and it's not irrelevant to the story, but it isn't the main point. As we look at this, one of the questions I have to ask myself is, what is actually happening here? What's the structure of this story? How does the writer, how does Luke lay this out? What is it that the Lord is putting on his heart, in his mind, in his pen, that we need to see, and as we see it, what is it telling us? What does it tell us about Christ? How does it fit into the overall story of what God is doing from beginning to end? How does it fit into the overall story of the new covenant? How does it fit into the overall story of the book of Acts? And you know, one of the things that strikes me as I was reading through this, this is just kind of a side point that caught me 
just this morning, actually, as I was reading through this again, every single chapter that we've seen so far, except for the first chapter, other than chapter 1, where Jesus is giving the charge to the disciples and ascending and, and Judas is being replaced, from Acts 2, and the moment the Holy Spirit hits the church and the church begins, the, the believers are gathered, Holy Spirit comes on them, and wonderful, amazing things happen. They receive that power, and they become witnesses. In every single chapter that we have encountered, we see the gospel being preached. You can check that for yourself. Go back and read through it. In every situation, whatever is going on, we've, we've just come through some very action-packed chapters here with uh, Stephen's stoning and the persecution of the church and the, the dramatic conversion of of Simon and the Ethiopian, more dramatic with Simon than with the Ethiopian, more genuine and real and actual conversion with the Ethiopian, not so much with Simon. We see the dramatic, overwhelming experience that Paul has on the road to Damascus, and he is converted, reborn. In every single one of these places, every chapter, the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Now here, how does this fit into that? We don't see signs and wonders everywhere. We do see them somewhere. So it's not completely new, and yet it's not universal. As we look at what happens here, <clears throat> as we look at what happens here in chapter 9, verses 32 to 43, there are two events linked as one. And the, the thing that happens throughout the entire thing, the main character that is focused on is Peter. Peter goes to Lydda. What's he doing in Lydda? Why is he there? While he's there, he encounters a man named Aeneas, who may or may not be a believer. John MacArthur says the way it's worded means that he was not a believer. Others would say he definitely is a believer. I don't know that the text gives us a certainty. Do with it what you will. He comes across this man named Aeneas who has been crippled. He's been bedridden for eight years. Everybody around the community knows it. And he says to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Not Peter heals you. Jesus Christ heals you. And as he says this to him, he goes farther and says, get up, go make your bed. And he does. As we would expect, not surprisingly, with a miracle of this type, everybody's talking about it. And we see the culmination of that part of the story, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 35, immediately... Uh, immediately got up, all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon, the surrounding area, saw him and turned to the Lord. Peter's there, and we see in verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. That's important to recognize. In fact, I would say that might be the most important thing for us to recognize right out of the gate. How do we get from Peter traveled around the country visiting the Lord's people, to he is in Joppa, and, and the people of Joppa are believing the Lord. This is a pretty significant thing. 
He's in Lydda not preaching evangelistic gospel. He's not there to witness to unbelievers. He's there specifically, it says, he went to visit the Lord's people. Most of your translations probably say visiting the saints. He's ministering to the saints. That's an important word we'll talk about in a while. As he ministers to the saints, a miraculous thing happens, and in this miraculous thing, unbelievers turn to Christ. The believers in Joppa hear that he's nearby. Let us between Jerusalem and Joppa. He's not far away. They have a dear sister in Christ who has blessed everyone with her good deeds. And she's died. Doesn't say how or what happened. She gets sick, she dies. Everybody is broken. And you can imagine when that happens in a church, in one of the, the pillars of the church, so to speak, who has been a blessing to everyone who just has, has touched life after life, not just thinking about good deeds, but actually doing the good deeds. There's an impact. And people are, are touched, and they weep. So they wash her, they put her in an upstairs room. A little unusual that they would do that instead of burying her immediately, but they put her in this upstairs room. They know that Peter is nearby. They've gotten word that he's... Close, So they send two disciples to go and get him. And they bring Peter. I have to believe, it doesn't tell us, but I have to believe in the nature of how Luke writes this, that they're not expecting what they get. Now, why would they? It's not normal. Peter's not raised anybody else. It's not normal to have a dead person come to life anyway. Clearly, they would recognize, if they've been in Christ for any length of time, that resurrection is part of Christianity. This, theologians would often call resuscitation. Resurrection gives us a new glorified body, and we'll all receive that resurrection at the end when Christ returns. In the meantime, we see this raising from the dead, and I have to believe that when they sent for Peter, they just wanted him to be there. To weep with them. To comfort them. To guide and instruct them. Peter, why? Why would the Lord take her? Look at all she's doing for the kingdom. Look at how she's ministering. Why? And as they bring him there and they're weeping with him, he sends everybody out. It echoes what Jesus does in Mark with a little girl named Talitha. And he sends the mourners out. And he says to her, Talitha Koum, rise. Little girl, get up. Peter does the same. He sends them out and he says, Tabitha, my little gazelle. Tabitha and Dorcas both mean gazelle or deer or doe. Little dear, get up. And she comes to life. Only the power of Christ does this. Notice Peter doesn't just walk in and immediately she comes to life. There are amazing things that happen and some 
some really difficult to, to figure out situations in Scripture. But Peter doesn't do that. And what we never see is big healing, miraculous revivals. Come to my big tent meeting and we're going to lay hands on you. And if you make a contribution to our ministry, then God will do mighty works and miracles in your life. That is not what we ever see in Scripture. So run from that pattern. But what we see is Peter coming, broken with the saints, weeping with those who weep, mourning for this dear sister whom he's probably never met. And yet she's a sister in Christ. And he gets on his knees and he prays. And he asks the Father for guidance. He seeks the Lord in the midst of this moment. And after praying, he turns to her and tells her to get up. I wish I could hear what the Lord said to him or what he said to the Lord. But in the midst of this conversation with his father, God leaves this, this instruction, this impression on Peter. This one has more work to do. Tell her to get up. The power of Jesus Christ that healed Aeneas, the resurrection power that rose Jesus from the grave, now is operating in this room. And the Lord says, Peter, tell her to get up. And Peter says, get up. What do you suppose she does? She gets up. And everybody who was weeping is now absolutely mind blown. Not shockingly. It becomes known all over Joppa. And many people believed in the Lord. We have an interesting verse at the end in verse 43. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. This, this particular sentence, this last verse, is the transition that will move us into chapter 10. It's a preparation. We'll look into it a little bit more next week. It's a preparation for what Peter is about to experience as the Lord moves him in an entirely new direction in his life and ministry. Before any of this happens, we see these conversion stories in chapter 8 and the first half of 9. We see Philip preach in the Samaritan city and Simon the sorcerer, the mage, the great power of God, as he called himself. He believes and is baptized, and yet he's unchanged, unconverted. His heart still isn't right with God. He still is seeking the things of the flesh, of the world. Philip goes and he preaches to an Ethiopian eunuch in a somewhat casual conversation. No signs, no wonders, no miracles, just the explanation of the gospel. And this Ethiopian eunuch, in the quietness of this conversation, receives Christ and is baptized and is converted. Notice they're both baptized. They both join the church. They're identified with Christ in his body. And then in chapter 9, in the first portion of it, we see Saul in this unbelievable, dramatic conversion. As Jesus himself knocks Paul down, strikes him blind, calls him out of this persecution of the church into the church to be persecuted. In fact, he even tells Ananias, I'm going to reveal to Paul how much he's going to suffer for my name. And Saul is baptized. He joins the church. 
He becomes a part of the fellowship that he once persecuted. Here now we see Peter in what is a shift from these conversion stories into a ministry to the church. With Saul no longer persecuting the church, the church experiences a time of peace, shalom, and growth. And Peter travels about freely preaching the gospel. But here he's not doing that, is he? He's teaching, he's instructing, he's visiting, he's preaching the gospel to those who have received it already. He's teaching the life of Christ. He's giving the apostles' teachings to the church, and as he passes this on to them, the gospel still goes out to those outside the church. This is the point. This is our core reality. When the reality of Christ is reflected inside the church, it will radiate outside the church. When the reality of Christ is reflected inside the church, it will radiate outside the church. In other words, the world will see Jesus when they see Jesus in us. That's what's happening here. God is at work through Peter in the church. God is at work in and through his people, which means that God at work in the church is God at work in the world. If this is our core reality, if this is the reason that Luke puts it here, for us to see that ministry, ministry to the church, ministry in the church, is not separated from evangelism, but it all goes together. That there is a gospel presentation in our living of life together. When we love one another, when we demonstrate the power of Christ, when we reflect the reality of Christ within the family, within the body, within the context of the local church, God is glorified and that light shines out to everyone else. Let's kind of look at what this means for the church. We're going to walk through some points. We'll go as, as quickly as I can manage. I know we've got a lot in here, so we'll, we'll try to go fairly quickly through it. You're intelligent people. You can check those references that are listed for you for yourselves. I would encourage you as you go through your week to spend time looking up some of these scriptures, relating them to the, to the passage that we have here. And as always... You don't need to hear what I have to say. You need to hear what God has to say. And to the extent that, that God speaks through his servant, and to the extent that we rightly divide the word of truth and hold this out to you, then cling to it. But always, always, whether it's me or anyone else, check it against the Scripture. Always, 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 word of God first. That said, let's press into this. First, notice this. The church is God's family of saints. The church is God's family of saints. So what does that mean? As we go through each of these, we'll describe the church, and then we'll give an exhortation. The church is God's family of saints. Be together. Be together. There is a unity not just a physical togetherness, the gathering of the saints. Now we know, Hebrews 
10.25 tells us not to forsake the assembling together of ourselves. We should do that, but there's a purposefulness in that that we might spur one another on to good deeds. There is an, there's an, uh, an encouragement that comes when we are together, when we are not only physically gathered, obviously in the midst of a pandemic, that's not something that we have been doing recently. So we are gathering as best we can online, connecting with one another, doing whatever we can by phone, by text, to, to spur one another on to good deeds, to encourage one another, because we are still, even when we are physically separated, we are united in Christ. There is a unity, a togetherness. In Acts chapter 2, we saw, in fact, you can flip there just quickly. We'll come back to Acts 9. We're going to jump around a little bit. But I just want you to see in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 47, there's a picture of the church that we have. And it says, starting with verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's a togetherness, a unity. They're all pulling in the same direction. And as the church grows, not only in number, but in unity and in depth, as they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the world around them sees this. And they grow in favor with all the people. Turn the page to Acts chapter 4. We see a similar thing at the end of at chapter 4, uh, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. We see a primacy, a centrality in the church of caring for the needs of one another in the body. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Turn toward, uh, toward the back of the book to 1 Peter 3.8. 1 Peter 3.8. Peter is talking about this life in Christ and what it means to live in this world that we're in that is so not surrendered to God. And he says in, uh, in verse 8, Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. There's a, a, a powerful thing here. This love one another, uh, your translation may say love like brothers. I think my favorite version of this says you should be like one big happy family full of sympathy toward one another. We should be one big family because that's what we are. The church is God's family of saints. Don't miss out on the fact that in Acts chapter 9, that's who Peter's ministering to. Throughout the New Testament, the church is referred to as saints. Not some special category of believers. 
It's not those people who have everything all figured out. Just the opposite. Saints means holy ones. That's the definition of it. It's the holy ones. And holy at its core means different, separate, set apart. That's what the word church translated from the Greek ekklesia or ekklesia. As we see this ekklesia, it's the same word that's used for political gatherings in the city-states in Greece. It means set apart for a purpose, called out. This is exactly what God has told us. He said this to Israel, be holy because I am holy and I have separated you from the nations to be mine. We see this, Peter says the same thing to the church, be holy because your God is holy. We are to be separated. There's a difference between believers and the world. Not above, we're not better than anybody else, but we don't belong to ourselves and we don't belong to this world. We have been taken out, set apart. We now belong to Christ. He purchased us with his own blood. So in this setting apart, from the moment we receive Christ, we are now holy ones, set apart ones, saints. The ministry to the church is not to some special class of people, but to those who are a family set apart for God. Our job then is to commit ourselves to being together, intimately connected Devoted to one another. Feeling, expressing, acting on the love that flows from the kinship we have in Christ. What unites us in Him is bigger than anything that could divide us. Forget about your politics. Forget about your preferences. Throw all of those temporal, worldly things aside. What unites us is that which is eternal. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself who has given us life.